we ask that your spirit move this morning in the preaching of the word. Lord, that your love will pervade everything I say and everything we hear. And that you will minister to our hearts and that we will be receptive. Amen. Guilty pleasures. Let's talk about guilty pleasures. That probably sounds like an odd way to start a sermon. Surely we're better off running away from guilty pleasures, pretending they don't exist, putting them with all the other things we'd rather not talk about. We serve a jealous God. Have you heard that phrase? Do you know what it means? It's used a lot in the Bible. In fact, it's one of the phrases that God uses to describe himself. A jealous God. He doesn't want to share us. He doesn't want to compete with anyone or anything for our affection, for our worship. Now, maybe this sounds like a negative thing. Jealousy, usually used to refer to a damaging, unhealthy emotion. But there are some forms of jealousy that are right and proper. My wife, Sharon, is jealous for my time and attention. By which I mean she enjoys my company. I know, I find it odd too. <laughs> no accounting for taste. Sharon likes having my time and attention, and the feeling is mutual. If I spent all day playing computer games, practicing on my guitar, or talking to anyone else but her, she would rightly feel slighted, feel jealous. So jealousy, in its right place, is the emotion that desires what is due. Jealousy is the emotion that desires what is rightly due. My contract of employment says that during office hours I will work for my employer. State of the obvious, I know. This means I don't spend those hours amusing myself or working for someone else. My employer is jealous of my time. And in a similar way, similar way God is jealous for us. He made us, he gave us life. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God paid the price for our sin and won us for himself. So in a very real sense, God <coughs> is entitled to us. Every part of us. Every action, every thought, every feeling, every molecule of our bodies belongs to him. So when I'm talking about guilty pleasures, what is it that makes these pleasures guilty? Well, I'm clinging on to something I want for myself that I don't want to give up, that I don't want to be removed, something I don't want to be repaired. You need me to be more specific, don't you? So let me pick an obvious one that won't make any of us blush too much. Chocolate. We're not long past the Christmas season and it was still fresh in my mind as I started preparing this sermon. As part of my job, I buy stuff from various suppliers. And we've had some big contracts over the last year, and it seems to be customary in the business world for some suppliers to send thank you gifts to their customers. And one of my suppliers sent some goodies to be shared amongst my team. 
Now the supplier, knowing that I'm gluten intolerant, asked me what it would be safe to send that was especially for me. I feel quite uncomfortable with this sort of situation. I don't really like asking anyone for anything. The truth is, I'm quite shy. It's sort of ironic, isn't it, that God's <laughs> got me up here preaching sermons. Anyway, I managed to blurt out the two things I like that generally don't contain gluten. <coughs> if you didn't catch that, it was <coughs> chocolates and whiskey. Two guilty pleasures for the price of one. So, chocolate. Boxes arrived at my office, very exciting. And I opened one of these boxes that was addressed to me, and it was big. I mean, big. Think, small lorry. <laughs> admittedly, some of that was packaging, but it still contained the largest box of Thornton's chocolates I've ever seen. <laughs> what was I going to do with such a large box of chocolates? Well, obviously, I could keep them in the office and share them with my colleagues. But instead I did what any considerate, generous, right-thinking person would do, and I took them out. <laughs> now you need to know something about my family to understand the full extent of my generosity here. <laughs> my son, James and Morgan are both lactose intolerant. And since most chocolate contains milk, that means none for the boys. <laughs> and Sharon's very good about these things. She didn't want to be tempted by such a large box of chocolate, so none for Sharon. <laughs> well, hardly any for Sharon. Or maybe just a few for Sharon. And that still left the lion's share of these chocolates for me. And since I hate to see waste <laughs> brought up properly. And I didn't like the, the thought of the fine efforts of those chocolate makers being unappreciated. I valiantly gobbled the lot. <laughs> guilty pleasure. And what made that a guilty pleasure? I enjoyed the chocolate. But I didn't need the chocolate. It's pretty hard to justify in those quantities. Sharon had already bought me two small boxes of chocolates for Christmas, and really that was more than enough. But I really, really like Thornton's. And so I ate more than I needed, more than I could even enjoy, more than was healthy. And if I didn't wear clothes that carefully concealed the evidence, you'd all be agreeing with me vigorously right now. That was a guilty pleasure. If I'd have thought about it more, maybe I'd have heard my conscience saying, Oi! Lay off! Maybe I would have heard God saying, Rob, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Barbara read that out there, Psalm 1611. The guilty pleasures, they don't always cause significant harm, but they're not the best way, not God's way. And perhaps you can see that here in my life, there's an area that's not fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ, that I lack self-control. 
God is jealous for me. He wants every part of me. If chocolate fulfills a need that he should be fulfilled, it's sin, isn't it? I'm a work in progress. And let me be clear, this is not to say that chocolate is evil. No. Marmite is evil. Not Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Chocolate is lawful. Too much chocolate is not helpful, although admittedly it doesn't build up in a different way. <laughs> in Romans 14, Paul addresses two major guilty pleasures that are causing trouble in the church. Spiritual competitiveness and judgmentalism. Comparing ourselves with others and judging them. So why have I gone on about guilty pleasures before reading this passage, today's passage? It's because I think we can all identify with this. We all have guilty pleasures. We all do things we shouldn't do. And some of the time, we know we shouldn't do them. But we do them anyway. Like me with 500 kilos of chocolate. <laughs> if we're honest, as we read this chapter, we will see ourselves here. This is not to condemn us. This is to lift up the mirror of Scripture, take a good look in the mirror, and ask ourselves, do we need to do something about what we see here? Do we need to make some changes? Have I, in my spiritual competitiveness, or my tendency to judge others, have I provoked God to jealousy? Does he want me to change? So, Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. <coughs> the one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, 
but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed good, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul's reaching a crescendo now in his letter. We're getting near the end of Romans. And if you like, we're seeing where the rubber hits the road. Now this is a practical chapter. And I hope that we can see that it's one that's aimed at preserving and developing a real peace among the brothers and sisters in the family of Christ. And wouldn't it be good, wouldn't it be good, wouldn't it be great if we all lived in peace and harmony at all times? Resolving our differences quickly. Standing together as fellow servants of God. Verse 1, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What does Paul mean by weak in faith? I think we can see from the rest of the chapter that he has in mind here a kind of uncertainty of belief. Paul writes his letter to people, many of whom are quite young in their faith, not exactly sure what they believe yet. And some of them are still stuck in Jewish traditions that they've been brought up in, believing that they have to follow these old practices. And others have understood the freedom that comes with the gospel. And moved on. So we need to be careful here and not assume that this weakness in faith has to do with spiritual age, you know, how, how long someone's been a Christian. I'd say that someone who's been a Christian 40 years is just as able to be weak on a matter of faith as someone who's been a Christian four weeks. So like any church, really, Paul's writing to a mixed bunch. Just like at Freedom, there are people who've been devout for many years, people who've only recently accepted Jesus, who haven't yet made that step, and people who have been faithful for many years but who are completely stuck on some point of doctrine. And Paul says about those who are weak in faith, welcome them, but don't quarrel over opinions. Do we quarrel? Do we think that we're right? Are we so assured of our own positions that we try and make others see our point of view, force them to agree with the way we see things. Paul suggests 
a gentler approach. Welcome each other. Don't quarrel about your differences of opinion. But regardless of the state of our belief, how firm our convictions, how much we understand our faith, how firmly we cling to it or waver, we are to come together without a sense of superiority, disdain, judgment, or pride. We need to accept each other just as Christ accepts us. Verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Eats only vegetables. So what's almost certainly going on here is that devout Jews are concerned that the meat that's placed in front of them isn't kosher. I don't know if you have any Jewish friends, but this is still very much a thing. It's a belief based on the Old Testament principles of cleanliness of food and years of history and tradition that meat has got to be prepared in a very particular way. And back in Paul's time, if a Jew went into the home of a Gentile for a meal, the safest thing to eat would be the vegetables. There would be less chance of breaking one of their dietary restrictions that way. And this problem might not simply be confined to Jews. The Gentile converts who are reading their Bibles, which contain what we now know as the Old Testament, they're going to see the old food laws there. So I guess it's reasonable to think that some of the Gentiles would then have started trying to apply those laws, thinking they'd come under this same obligation. Now, an even more troubling scenario for the devout Jew or Christian was a possibility that the meat had been involved in a sacrifice to a false god. What would happen in some of the traditions of the time was that meat would be sacrificed to a pagan deity, the pagan deity would get a token share, and then the rest of the meat would be sold. Now, now Paul would say that so-called deity doesn't exist. So this act of sacrifice is completely meaningless and irrelevant. It doesn't affect the meat. Anyway, we have here one person who believes that he can eat anything, and another who's sticking to vegetables to be on the safe side or to follow his own conscience. And notice that the person who can eat anything is technically right. Let's look quickly at Mark 7. Mark 7 verses 14 to 23, Mark 7. And here we see Jesus is overturning what the Jews thought they knew about the law, about cleanliness. Mark 7, 14 to 23. And he, that's Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
So Jesus declared all foods clean, and the person on the vegetable diet is missing out. But what does Paul say to do? Does he say that we need to convince that person of the error of their ways, point them to the passage in the Bible that we just read, show them they're wrong, and that they too can be free like us? No, Romans 14, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Don't look down on someone who's following a particular point of faith. Just because you think you know better. You might even actually know better. Don't despise them. Just the spiritual competitiveness I mentioned earlier. I know better than you. And then for the one who's following the tradition, not knowing or accepting that there's a better way, they are not to pass judgment on the first. So we're not trying to prove each other wrong. And we're not looking down on each other, even if we know better than the other person. This has real application, doesn't it? I don't know how many of us have friends in other churches, other traditions. Do we ever look at people in an Anglican church and feel superior with their liturgy, their special ways of doing things? Do you look down on that? Do they look at us exercising what we call our freedom and judge us? Neither should be the case. We are to welcome each other, not quarreling over opinions. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul speaks of a fellowship without superiority. God is the master of everyone. We shouldn't assume that we can stand in the place of God deciding whether or not someone's conduct is pleasing to God. There's there's an interesting thread that we can tease out from this whole chapter. The, The importance of different positions of faith. Or to put it another way, the importance of conscience. It's important that we don't ignore the conscience that God's given us. He's given us a conscience as a mechanism to help us understand his will. Okay, like all facets of human experience, our conscience is fallen and faulty. But it's still valuable and not to be ignored. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This reminds me a bit of the church of Laodicea. In Revelation 3, we see a letter that's from God and it's addressed to this church. In Revelation 3 15 and 16, we read this. This is God talking to the church. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And similarly, James chapter 1, verse 5 to 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask him faithfully, with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So in Romans 14.5, Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We are not lukewarm, wavering between two points of view. We're not double-minded. We have sought to understand God's will as best we can, and having done that, having shaped our consciences, we follow our conscience as we work out our faith. Let me put some flesh on this. So for, for probably about a third of my Christian life, I had a very dogmatic view of tithing. I believed, because this is what I've been taught, that the Bible said that we should give 10% of all our income to God at all times. And so including my pocket money and later my wages, that's what I did. And I would ask myself questions like, does this 10% mean before or after tax? And Sharon and I would discuss this, uh, reach what we felt was our best understanding before God, and we'd proceed accordingly. Now, because I believe a particular thing about timing, that meant my conscience bound me to do it. Whether I was actually right or wrong in my biblical understanding, that was almost irrelevant, secondary to the fact that I ought to be doing what I believed was right. I suppose that's the crux of it. We ought to be doing what we believe to be right. If we believe it's right and don't do it, that's when we fall under Paul's criticism. If I failed to tithe in the way I believe was right, that, for me, would have been wrongdoing, an offence against my conscience. Just to finish up this thought, <clears throat> later in my Christian walk, I spent a bit more time reading what the Bible has to say about giving, reading how Jesus' sacrifice affects this, and I suppose as a slightly older and hopefully more mature Christian, it was appropriate for me to seek out some of these answers myself. Not to overthrow what I'd previously thought or learned, but just to double-check whether or not I grabbed the wrong end of the stick. And of course I had. I'd not fully appreciated how truly the Bible speaks when it says, the earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. My wages are his. The plants that grow in my garden are his. When I was a child, receiving pocket money, that was his. When I was unemployed and signing on for a while, that money was his. Should I reach an age to draw a pension, that pension, however meagre, will be his too. I'm deliberately not being specific now. Sharon and my understanding has moved on from our earlier thinking and our approach has changed to reflect what we believe to be God's will. But I'm not telling you what to do because it wouldn't be right for me to tell you what to do. No, it would be right for you to reach an understanding yourself before God about what to do with your resources, the things he's given you. And besides, today's sermon is an exposition of Romans 14, not a topical sermon on giving. The important point that Paul is making is that you and I don't fall out 
over our giving or tithing. We can, of course, discuss what the Bible says and together look to improve all our understanding, but not to fight, not to judge each other, not to be competitive with one of us feeling we're doing a better job in our giving. So in verse 5, you have some people thinking perhaps that the Sabbath is the most important day of the week, the most holy day, while another simply thinks that all days are holy. This is not something to fight over. <coughs> yeah, we always seek to ensure we're understanding God well, but we don't rate each other when we disagree. Let's move to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. Both parties here are wrong. The one that's stronger in faith is looking down on the one that's weaker in faith. The weaker one is judging the stronger. And neither has any right to do that. Why? Because we're all equal, literally equal, before God. All equally saved by Christ. All equally righteous because, what, because of what he's done for us. All equally guilty of falling short of God's sentence. Our judgment is nothing compared to his. We do not know what we're talking about. Do you ever find yourself talking to someone extremely intelligent or articulate and find like you feel you have very little to contribute to the conversation? I'm not saying you're right thinking that. But imagine that magnified a hundred times, a thousand times. God's wisdom is so far removed from our own that when it comes to each other's conscience, we're better off shutting up and letting God do the judging and letting his word do the talking. But there's another aspect, a wonderful aspect, in which God is vastly superior to us. And for this, we should all be falling on our knees in gratitude. He is more merciful. More merciful than us. And in his mercy, he allows us all to be wrong. Think about it. Skipping now to verse 13. So Paul's lined up his shot and he's about to take it. And the underlying principle so far has been to love and respect one another. And now he drives this point home. <coughs> Verses 13 to 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. For better or worse, I love the American comedy series 
they found it there. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the odd occasion when Sharon and I frown at each other and think, mm, maybe we should skip this bit. But generally, it's okay for us. And this is a show which has unmarried couples sleeping together, not shown graphically, but implied. Scientific knowledge is sometimes assumed to be the only correct view of the universe, and sometimes the characters swear or blaspheme. This program doesn't offend my conscience, but it may well offend yours. I could see how it might. It doesn't offend me because I don't, I don't feel that I'm encouraged or drawn to copy the characters in the show. And when it comes to swearing, I generally feel that I have a choice whether or not to be offended. And the very mild things that are said in this show fall into the category of things that I might not say myself, but which don't make me blush. But what if I knew you had a problem with any of the things in this show? What if I knew, for example, you couldn't bear to hear someone take the Lord's name in vain, that you felt it was dangerous to listen to such a thing? It would then be unloving for me to invite you round to my house to watch it with me, wouldn't it? Or to rave about how good this show is. Or take the concept of the Sabbath, for example. And I'm sure that in this room we have a variety of opinions about what it's okay or not okay to do on a Sunday, about whether we should treat this day as any different at all. Let's imagine two friends at the church, George and Hillary. And George believes that rest is a spiritual principle to be exercised during the whole week. Hillary believes that Sundays are special and are to be a day of rest, and she would never dream of shopping on a Sunday. George knows Hillary well, and he knows what she thinks about shopping on Sundays. Simple question. Should George offer to go to the supermarket on a Sunday to buy groceries for Hillary? Without wanting to be too legalistic or prescriptive here, I'd say definitely not. You see, what if George's actions cause Hillary to think, well, if it's okay for George to shop on a Sunday, I may as well do it too. And Hillary then goes shopping on a Sunday, but not because she believes it's okay. No, her conscience is still making her feel uncomfortable <coughs> about this. But she does it anyway because she's followed George's lead, rather than the leading of her conscience. Rather than doing what she felt right before God. And note that in this scenario, it's not Hillary that Paul criticizes, it's George. George's behavior encouraged Hillary to offend her own conscience. So let's be mindful of each other's views. Let's accommodate each other. Let's be loving towards one another. Let's not lead others into doing something they believe is wrong. The exercise of our freedom bought at such a high price should not injure a brother or a sister, however unintentionally. And don't take this to mean that we can never teach one another about the freedom we see in the gospel. Paul is simply directing us here to take a loving approach as we work out our faith together as a community of believers. 
Now, verse 16, and this is a slightly tricky verse to understand. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. If we are exercising a freedom which other people think is wrong, this may now become a cause for gossip or slander. I'm free to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But would I want to become known as the person that eats such food? Knowing that there are those who consider this to be a sin. I'm not trying to talk us into a state of paranoia here, though. Worrying about whether people think we're doing the, the wrong thing. Because uh, that would just take us from the bondage of legalism and put us under the bondage of man's opinion. I guess I'm just saying that we should be sensitive to one another. Sensitive and not judgmental. Paul brings this all into clear perspective in verses 17 to 19, and with this I'll close. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth it shows us. We thank you for the righteousness and peace and joy that you give us. Help us in our weakness to serve you in this way, to be loving and caring to one another. And together, to seek your peace, to seek to build one another up as a community of believers who love and accept one another.